Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 17 of Vague Zone. I am one of your hosts, Daniel, and joining me as always is... Thomas A. And today we are discussing the 2017 Yorgos Lanthimos film, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And joining us for this discussion is Derek Cooper, founder of Dimension, a new type of social platform dedicated to improving the quality of online discourse and eradicating misunderstanding. Say hello, Derek. Hello. Great to be here. Yeah, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, the pleasure is all yours. So, before we get into the movie discussion, let's uh, let's take a quick look at the IMDb synopsis. Um, Stephen, a charismatic surgeon, is forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after his life starts to fall apart. When the behavior of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister. So, Derek, since you are a guest, and since I know you're a big fan of this movie and have been pushing me to watch it, what do what do you think of Killing of a Sacred Deer? Uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, I guess I guess the thing that that I really like about the movie is how much it is a sort of um, an expression that is specific to Yorgos, right? Uh, if you've seen any of his other films, they all have a very specific feel to them, um, and you know, in any time that that you know, I, I'm I'm seeing kind of uh, art being made by someone who has a sort of like very distinct fingerprint. Um, I, I really enjoy kind of getting every uh, every instantiation of, of that expression as they kind of roll out. So um, Killing of a Sacred Deer is just kind of another one of, of the set. And uh, I, I think it's probably my favorite of, 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 of the set uh, of, of, of his uh, collection, I guess. Yeah, I was going to ask you where this sits in your ranking. Um, right at the top, I guess. Why, why, why? What about Killing of a Sacred Deer makes it the number one Yorgos? Um, I, I think it was just like the weirdest one uh, it, in, in my experience. And, and, and yeah, I, I don't know. So, something about it was kind of just like super attractive. Um, I thought it was pretty exceptional from a sort of um, like the, the sounds uh, of the film, even just the opening kind of like it throws you right into to, to playing with your emotions before, you know, while, while you're staring at a, a black screen. Um, but then I think also like the characters across the slate in this movie have such a sort of kind of uniform, uh, monotonous tone to them um, that it, it, it kind of, yeah, it, to, to me, it, it just kind of like stood alone, e even if like thinking about the favorite as another one um, where the characters don't necessarily just have this sort of like uniformity uh, across them in the same way that that Killing of Sacred Deer does. So, yeah, I, I think the number of times in, in, in Killing of Sacred Deer that I'm kind of like giggling to myself in discomfort is a, a bit more extreme. And, and that's kind of, yeah, part, part of what's attractive about it to me. Definitely. Yeah. It gets comedy out of such very bizarre human moments where it's just like, I was just like, okay, is this very funny or is this like just very dark? And I'm the only one that kind of is in on this very strange joke. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Thomas. Yeah. What were your thoughts on this movie? Um, I enjoyed it. I found it a very challenging film overall. Um, I watched this back to back with the lobster and yeah, it's kind of my fast introduction to Yorgos and just his kind of style and his particular language of film and yeah i would say i probably enjoyed the lobster more but this is a movie that i feel like kind of stands on its own and is yeah very challenging with what it's trying to say i i only think i got like a surface level of what it was you know trying to get as far as communicating what this family dynamic was going through and who these people are and like kind of how they get pushed to this very far extreme but yeah it's great it's a really perplexing puzzle type of movie and I, I enjoyed it. It was, yeah, just a, a trip to watch overall. 
Yeah, I definitely kind of looked at it as a puzzle movie. This feels like one of those movies where every little thing is, you know, commute. It, it's all working towards something. And I don't know what it is. Um, and I feel like with half my notes, they're just questions. Yeah, I like the the style of it. I think, yeah, the the... Yeah, the push-ins and, and like the hospital, like these long tracking shots and these really uh, close-up canted angles really kind of lend to the story very well where it's just like, yeah, it's a lot of like inner digestion happening with these characters and what they're saying is not exactly communicating what, you know, they might actually be feeling or trying to do. And so, yeah, it's just a, a, like a really good, lush visual thing to look at, but also it's just a, a puzzle and something kind of to unpack, has many layers to it. Yeah, so this movie, I guess, is based off of a Greek tragedy. Um, Derek, maybe you know more about this? I'm not sure. but um... Um, Yeah, I mean, a little bit, but only only in kind of like what I've read about the film after the fact. Um, but yeah, just like roughly the, the, the arc of, of the movie does mimic uh, the, the Greek tragedy of, you know, so, someone kind of having been... Um, yeah, uh, killed from another family, and then and then in order to kind of like get justice, there's a sort of like a, a sacrifice required uh, from the family that that you know accidentally uh, did whatever. I'm not sure if you have more of a. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I'm gonna butcher all the Greek names, so I'm not even gonna try and pronounce them. But it's the story of someone killing a deer, and then a goddess uh, tells him that he must take the life of his own daughter to sort of you know bring about justice. Um, but yeah, when I watched this movie during the first act, um, so, so I so I went in this movie completely blind. Like I knew who the cast was, and I knew it was Yorgos Lanthimos, and that's all I knew. That's all I needed to know. You know, I knew I was going to get around to watching it at some point. So the first act, I really didn't know where this was going. I almost felt like the sinister character was Colin Farrell's character, Stephen, because um, he has this unusual relationship with. Martin, who is this 16-year-old boy, and he lies to the people around him about the dynamic of that relationship. He lies to his co-worker saying that um, he's a classmate of his daughter. He lies to his wife about how long they've known each other. Um, yeah, and it's there's a moment where he's having a conversation with Martin about Martin's dead father, and Martin mentions that he doesn't have a lot of friends, that... His father said something along the lines of, it's good to have good friends, not necessarily a lot of friends. And so it almost felt like Stephen was, like he was finding an isolated boy. Uh, a boy who didn't have a father, who didn't have a lot of friends. And the way it's shot, it's using these canted angles where it feels like Yorgos wants you to feel that something is wrong by having the camera crooked. Yeah, and even that scene isn't that right after he gives him the watch and they are like having like this very odd father and son kind of walk. I, I forget where this is takes place in, but yeah, it's, it's, it's scenic, but it's also kind of sinister in the way that it's, it's kind of angled. So yeah, he's like walking with him talking about this watch and they're it's like, yeah, you know, you should get a, get a, a, a different type of strap, but that metal strap is the most expensive one just to let you know. And it's like, okay, like what kind of relationship are you trying to, to like really sew with this kid? Yeah. He's giving this boy gifts. He wants the boy, <laughs> to call before he comes to the hospital to visit him so it's yeah it felt like steven was the sinister presence in martin's life and then at the end of the first act things sort of shift when bob uh steven's son he goes paralyzed from the waist down and steven is putting distance between himself and martin after 
uh, you know, Martin invites him over for dinner and tries to hook him up with his mom. There's Alicia Silverstone from Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it's great casting in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, Steven is trying to put this distance between him and Martin. And fuck, I lost my thought. <laughs> Where was I going? Uh, are you talking about the... Oh, oh. Well, I'm trying to figure out what part you're talking about. The the the, the, the part when he goes to their house and he watches the gra- Groundhog Day and then they have the conversation about the hands. Yeah. After that? And so Martin kind of puts Stephen in this unusual situation where Stephen feels the need to put distance between them. And then this is when Bob, uh, Stephen's son, he loses feeling in his legs. And so they rush him to the hospital. They're looking for answers. They can't figure anything out. And... Martin is at the hospital visiting Bob when Stephen and his wife, um, Anna, show up. And Martin pulls Stephen aside and says, uh, you know, this is actually very serious. Here's what's going to happen. And this is when we're getting in a major spoiler territory. But Martin says, uh, your family, they're going to lose feeling in their legs. They're going to be paralyzed from the waist down. They are going to refuse food. Uh, they will bleed from their eyes and then they will die unless you kill one of them. Uh, I believe it's, is it you kill one of them or if, unless one of them, yeah, because he has to kill one of them. That is part of the deal. Yes. Yeah. And so we learned that uh, Martin's father who passed away, he didn't die in a car wreck, which is what Stephen has told his wife. No, he died on the operating table. Stephen is a, a cardiologist and due to complications in the surgery, uh, Martin's father has passed. And so Martin blames Stephen for his father's death. Stephen, this, the dynamic of this whole relationship has just been that Stephen has been trying to sort of uh, be a father figure to Martin because he had robbed him of his own father. Uh, he is trying to... The, the movie begins on this very sort of poetic shot of we, we, we start with an open heart surgery. And as the story begins with an open heart surgery, Martin's father died during, uh, because of complications. And after Colin Farrell's character, Stephen, does the surgery, he walks over to a trash can with his bloody gloves and he peels the gloves off and he throws them away. And so it is him, uh, you know, wiping the blood off his hands, so to speak. And that is what he is attempting to do throughout this whole movie. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's very poignant. Yeah, I I like that. I I made a note about them throwing the the gloves into the trash because it, it holds on to that shot for a good moment. But that I, what you said is like, I feel like it's spot on. But yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, I like the music in this movie a lot. It's kind of backed by this really interesting score of kind of like a, a grinding and a screeching. I think I wrote like a harp or something. It's like, a, it's, it feels like a classical instrument. It's being kind of like screeched and manipulated kind of digitally into like these really like grinding, I don't know, like abrasive sounds that are just like, accenting just like yeah otherwise a very sterile looking environment there's a lot of like blues and cold cold tones kind of going on between the hospital and the house and so yeah like there's really good juxtaposition between the visuals and the sounds and just kind of how people talk and actually Derek I want to ask like you're a big fan of this filmmaker and like what do you think about the way that the characters talk in this movie because I felt like that was kind of an artistic statement to have all the characters be kind of stilted in their dialogue and have a interesting meter in their speech and I don't know what, what what did you think about that yeah I, I mean I, yeah it is interesting because I I think he he always has characters that kind of like fit this sort of like build where there's almost like a uh, like an emptiness to them you know and in this movie excuse me uh 
and 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 and, and this one like it, it it's kind of across the board again and like you see that in the dialogue like every conversation is like so superficial um but i think this also kind of ties to kind of the 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 character uh Colin Farrell in this case right where he's kind of like super surface level uh he's lying about everything and even the scene where he's kind of like peeling off his gloves uh and his hands end up being the sort of like the symbol throughout the rest of the film is very kind of like yeah i think it's symbolic of something where it's kind of like well here here's what's going on in reality it's something that i just peel off and then the rest of the time you know i'm being praised for for how beautiful my hands are um yeah that's so that's so true yeah there's so many dialogue there's so much dialogue about the hands being clean yeah, yeah it's uh, specifically doctor's hands that's what they say like yeah. all doctor's hands are they're all surgeons hands and uh, we get uh, Stephen saying something along the lines of, uh, oh, you know, a surgeon never kills the patients. Uh, the anesthesi- anesthesiologist can kill a patient, but not the surgeon. And so we're, we're doing this thing where we're sort of, uh, you know, the hands of a surgeon are sacred. They can't, they can't commit this terrible atrocity. But of course, we know that he has. He, he had a drinking problem. He was drinking at the time uh, that he... You know, did whatever he did that killed Martin's father, and so he he is unable to wipe his hands clean of this. Martin isn't going anywhere, and Martin has. Do we? Okay, so this is the thing. Do we believe that Martin has inflicted this curse upon Stephen, or do we believe that Martin just understands what is happening, and is communicating to Stephen, like this is the situation you're in, and this is the only way it's going to get resolved. Yeah, I mean, my take here is is definitely that Martin is kind of the the creator of the circumstances. Um, he's almost like you know pursuing justice for what has has mm-hmm. you know how he's been wronged, and I think this comes out in in some of the conversations that he has later. He's he's talking to um, Nicole Kidman at some point, and he says something like, "You know, I'm not sure if this is fair, but it's the closest thing that I can think of uh, that that's like kind of tied to justice, yeah. right?" And, and and like that to me, kind of yeah, definitely signals this thing, but also. Um, when he kind of does break this news of what the circumstance is to Colin Farrell, um, like he, 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 he kind of like, all right, I finally got it out. Like I had to get this out. This is going to be awkward. Um, and again, it, 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 yeah, I, I, I don't have any other explanations other than like somehow he has this sort of like almost like all powerful figure that has these supernatural abilities. And there is this weird thing that happens throughout the movie where so <clears throat> Bob loses feeling in his legs. He goes to the hospital. And when Stephen and Anna go to visit Bob, Martin is already there. Martin exits, and I think it's like within a short span of time, it is realized that, oh, Bob can actually walk, and he ends up walking out of there. Um, We also get a scene later where Kim, uh, Martin's daughter, has lost feeling in her legs. She goes to the hospital. She gets a call from Martin, and she walks to the window. She gets up and walks to the window, to see if Martin is outside. And so it is something like the presence of Martin is kind of undoing this curse upon these people, I feel like. I'm not sure if that's totally what was going on there, but... Well, that's interesting. Yeah, he has a, a really strange presence because, yeah, even from when they're at the diner and they're having, like, early on, they're having a conversation about just, like, just the way that they eat. And I don't know, there's this, uh, the close-up of him just kind of, like, drinking the soda. <laughs> and I was just, like, wrote down, yeah. drink soda menacingly. <laughs> like, he just, like, he just, like, he just feel like, has this weird energy. Maybe that's just props to the actor for pulling off the role so well and kind of working with the material uh, I mean, I, in, a, in, a, in a creepy way. 
I, yeah, I think I think it's also interesting. Just uh, I mean, you 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 commented on kind of like the the monotone dialogue throughout, and everybody having that, and and then the sound also creating that sort of like sinister uh, kind of like feeling. Um, but yeah, I, I guess like that that uh, yeah, I feel like the the whole thing is really like this is all you know. In my view, this is like such a success of Yorgos getting like basically every way that there can be an expression in this film. Like it has a, a kind of like it's leading us in a in a very specific. Uh, direction, almost, you know, trying to, to, yeah, not allow for us to, to ever find a moment of comfort, right? Like they're, they're, you're either being kind of like bombarded with, with the soundtrack or, you know, you're watching Martin do something like super creepily, um, in a way that's just like, kind of like, yeah, kind of throws you off. Um, or, or yeah, you're just listening to a dialogue that's just kind of like, what is going on here? Um, but all of it is, 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 is kind of definitely pointing into that, you know, you should be feeling unease uh, for, for the full two hours. Um, yeah. <laughs> in regards to like the monotone thing, I did watch an interview with Colin Farrell where he talked about how the script and like the way it was written, it felt like it was so sort of overwhelming that it felt like there wasn't a ton that he could bring to the table uh, performance wise, that it was like, the way it was written, it was so powerful that it was like there was only so much he could do within it, which I find kind of odd. Um, That's interesting, yeah. But yeah, like watching this, because I feel like he is the most monotone. Like we do get some of that out of uh, Martin. Uh, who? What is it? Barry Keegan? Is it Keegan or Kogan? Um, but that actor is fucking incredible. Um, but yeah, it. The whole time I'm Kogan. the whole time I'm watching these people perform, I'm like, what the fuck is Yorgos telling these people to get these performances out of them? Right. I, I was wondering, like, is he is he consistently telling them to do less? Because uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> he's like, we're not we're not running the camera. Just read the lines. Right. <laughs> Just to make sure you know. Yeah. Him. Yeah. And I was going to say, like, Colin Farrell is an interesting choice, too, because I'm more familiar with him and doing a lot more kind of extreme uh, roles. I don't know, like Daredevil and stuff like that, where he's, you know, playing bullseyes, being kind of really outlandish and going going over the top and so I'm used to that kind of that version of him and so yeah to see him in the lobster where he's this very 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 reserved and muted and very like you know like very mundane and monotone kind of dealing with like these outlandish kind of circumstances but in this one there's like I feel like it's a little bit closer to the Colin Farrell I was kind of uh familiar with where him is like he has an intensity you know like uh, like a fucking like a furnace inside of him where he like, has like the brooding so like as like this surgeon with everything kind of falling apart I thought it was really good but like a good um I, I don't want to say subversion but yeah kind of a good subversion of what I know Colin Farrell as is like this really intense person and so yeah I think I think Yorgos is yeah the, the whole the whole fucking package is is on point. Hmm. Yeah, should we talk more about like the the actual kind of plot towards the the middle and end when we get like the actual kind of sacrifice and revenge things playing out? Yeah, so yeah, we've established that um, both of Stephen's children have lost the feeling in their legs. They're both in the hospital and they're both rejecting food, and eventually they are brought home and they are being fed uh through a tube but nicole kidman's character anna who um steven's wife she gets in touch with martin and we have this great scene where martin is eating spaghetti and martin is sort of laying out like oh uh you know steven and my mother they've they've been flirting a lot and all this stuff and 
honestly, I kind of I kind of don't even remember what he says in the scene because I was so fixated on the spaghetti because it doesn't look like it doesn't look like fresh spaghetti. It looks like leftover spaghetti in a way where, you know, the sauce is sort of clinging to it. And I don't know. I just love the scene. Yeah. Well, what he says is he's talking about he's basically talking about how like he eats spaghetti like his dad. And he's like, yeah. he was really proud that he eats spaghetti just like his dad. And then he later finds out that everyone eats spaghetti the same way. And that like really like hurts him and hits him to the core. And like, yeah. And I yeah. think that's a really interesting moment. Cause he's, that's one of the few times we kind of get Martin just kind of being very transparent with what he like went through. And so, yeah, it's uh, not, there's not many moments like that in the film where he's, well, I guess he, he's kind of, kind of raw whenever he does start to talk and break down later on but here's the first kind of moment where it's like okay like is this who this kid actually is is this you know yeah and at the end of that scene he laughs uh he yeah he's like i gotta go to class and you know he's kind of being yeah and that is like one of the most human expressions i feel like we get from him throughout the whole movie Uh, i feel like this had had to have been his audition or something but he, he also like he ends the conversation with like have a nice day or something uh but it's also, yeah, he's like eating this leftover spaghetti for breakfast. So it's like there's there's so much that's confusing about about this. But to, to Thomas's point here, I think like this is after kind of everything is is kind of crumbling. And now Nicole Kidman's character is, is trying to scramble to figure out if she can do anything. And I do think it does have more of a uh, like Martin is a little bit more almost like, yeah, seemingly comfortable. Like him having that that conversation with Colin Farrell where he breaks the news to him like this is what the cir- circumstance is. Uh, he's almost like reserved in that moment. And then this following that, it's almost just like, yeah, you guys made your bed. Now you have to sleep in it. Well, the way he breaks it to Colin Farrell's character, it's like he he kind of assumes that he should already know. He says something along the lines of like, you know where this is going, right? And Mm. of course, Colin Farrell doesn't. So he explains it to him. And then he like kind of casually explains it again. Like, you got all this, right? Um, Yeah. It's interesting because, yeah, he has that very reserved exchange with his character, with Colin Farrell's character. And then, yeah, he has like this, like a nice ginger kind of romance. I don't know if ginger is not the word, but he has a nice romance that kind of develops with the daughter and they have like, you know, like the ride through the city and yeah, they like, they're like watching movies and they're like kind of just talking and joking. And yeah, you kind of get some actual tender moments and like real moments from this character. That, yeah, it's a good contrast. Well, do, what, what, what do you think? What do you I think? mean, I was gonna say, I think, I feel like that also feels sinister because it's like, yeah, the, so, okay. We, we mentioned Groundhog's Day earlier, <laughs> um, that this is yeah. Martin's favorite movie. He says, and it's a movie he used to watch with his dad. Um, and then Martin, for some reason, he's able to impose this curse upon the family. That scene in Groundhog's Day that they're watching, I'm pretty sure that's the scene where Bill Murray is t- telling, um, I think it's Annie McDowell, is that her name? That like um, that he's a god. Yeah. And she doesn't want to believe him. And so, it, yeah, Martin is this like, he's this god figure that like, we, we get a scene later in the movie where Nicole Kidman is like kissing his feet. And... True, he, yeah, yeah, very true, very true. And he sort of like has this sort of childish like, uh, he's like kind of naive. It feels like he doesn't. He doesn't feel like he's this all-powerful god. He doesn't even feel like he's necessarily a vengeful god. Like there's no emotion backing his decision to pursue justice. It's just this is how justice works, and I am going to impose it upon you people. Um, mm. So like his relationship with the daughter, it like the attraction that she feels for him, and these these tender moments. Like some some of those moments do feel like normal relationship, like teenage relationship shit. But like I don't know. 
considering how this movie yeah, the ends. Yeah, the smoking scene. Yeah, the smoking scene doesn't one. Yeah, they're like, your body is so perfect. And he's, the, the Bob is like, like, can I see your armpit hair? And like, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a very kind of like per- person looking at a statue kind of moment. <laughs> yeah, it's like this person is like a level above and they're just admiring every little bit of him. And then over the course of the movie, she begins smoking too. Mm. I mean, there, there's also, um, there's also, so later on after um, Colin Farrell's character has kind of kidnapped Martin and has him tied up in the basement, there's the, the scene where, well, Colin Farrell like punches him in the face, but then Martin like bites his arm. Um, and then he says, oh, I'm sorry, I did that. Uh, the only way I can fix this is if I do it to myself or something like that. And then he like bites a huge chunk out of his own arm. Uh, and somebody was suggesting that this is a sort of like flesh for flesh moment, which is a sort of like, a, a, a you know, a, a, a smaller version of basically the arc of the entire narrative. This idea of like, all right, what you did uh, in this moment now has to be kind of like done to, to, to make it even. So, um, yeah, yeah, uh, that th- there was that. And then and then also um, the thing that I think ramps up is um, his sort of like he. Yeah. The, the sinister aspect of the way that he's treating the daughter um, gets kind of like more and more obvious as it gets into it. Right. So um, I like I think maybe it's like the last night, um, but the daughter, you know, crawls down into that basement and she's kind of like asking Martin to, to save her. Right. Like, let's run away together. And he's kind of completely indifferent. And so it's kind of like not until this moment that she kind of realize realizes the sense in which she's she's been sort of like played uh, by him in, in kind of like building out uh, the relationship as they had done it up, up to that point. But it's also a thing where it's like. It's hard to it's hard to read the development of their relationship as like a sinister, manipulative, calculated maneuver because there's such little emotion that we're actually getting from them. Mm. I feel like I don't know. That's how I felt. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, I'm thinking like about the subversion aspect too, because the fact that their legs are kind of all numb, they're just like kind of the two kids are crawling around in the, like the the last half of this movie. And it, yeah, just this weird feeling of, yeah, like he's an, like a God, even though he's ambivalent, kind of strapped to this sort of like, I don't know. Was, I want to say it like a cross kind of allegory, but yeah, he's kind of mm. strapped to this chair and this is like, you know, this is the place where he's going to die or so to speak, or, you know? So, so what ends up happening is Steven acknowledges that he needs to sort of, play Martin's game. He needs to abide by his rules. He needs to face the justice. Um, I find it really interesting that this is supposed to, Anna, the wife, this para- paralyzation and lack of food, etc., is supposed to befall on her also. It never actually does. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does kind of place the pressure on, on Stephen to be the one to make this decision about who will die. And they're all sort of playing this game of like trying to please the father, Colin Farrell, because they're all yeah. none of, that's like a pretty funny moment. <laughs> like, yeah, this is a dark comedy. It's a it's a psychological thriller, but it, it does have a lot of these interesting comedic moments. There's a great line where um, Kim, the, the sister, uh, is saying is saying to Bob, he's saying, oh, I already lost like the worst thing happened. I lost two MP3 players. And she's like. Uh, Bob, can I have your MP3 player when you die? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I like the yeah the the 
the kid Bob throughout the entire movie has like this really long flowing hair and they like it comes up in conversation multiple times and then towards the end he like he crawls to the crawls to a cabinet and pulls out some scissors and just very roughly cuts his hair off and then proceeds to crawl to his dad into the kitchen and be like hey see dad like I cut my hair off because you know yeah it gets really hot and it's really cumbersome and it's just like yeah it's just like this is just really really strange and yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mom is yeah, uh, him doing like a weird like penance. The mom is an ophthalmologist, and Bob is saying, "Oh, I changed my mind. I don't want to be an ophthalmologist. I want to be a cardiologist." Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then yeah, that's interesting. And then Anna is telling him that she's going to wear a a certain dress that he wants her to wear. I believe. Um, and she's like, I don't know. She's still doing the mom thing. She's still like making the bed and stuff throughout all this shit. And yeah, everyone is trying to. Not be the one who gets murdered by Stephen, basically. And so, sort of the way Stephen confronts the situation he's been in is he he puts both of the kids in the living room. He asks his wife to meet him downstairs. And he tapes each one of them to a chair and puts sacks over their heads. Then he grabs a rifle and he spins around in circles uh, with a blindfold on. And, you know, he covers his eyes with a beanie. And he just starts firing. And... Yeah. So it's a game of like, who am I going to kill? I don't fucking know. Um, so <laughs> is it a cop out? Like, because he's not making the decision. He's allowing fate to make the decision. I mean, he he's making the decision to leave it up to fate, but he is kind of removing the emotional stakes from himself in a way. I don't know. Which is kind of like the, the theme throughout also, right? He's like avoiding responsibility for, for, for everything uh, from, from, you know, Martin's father's death, which he says can only be the anesthesiologist's mm-hmm. fault, right? You hear the actual, the, the opposite line come from the anesthesiologist later, which is amazing. Right. Um, but then, you know, you also see like uh, Nicole Kidman kind of pressuring him, like you have to do something about this. Like you put us in this situation. So she's trying to get him to do this. And then like the next scene is him at the school talking to the principal trying to get the principal yeah, of the school to tell him which child is better, right? He's searching, it's, it's, he's, he's trying to avoid it at all he's costs. He's searching for every way to remove the responsibility from himself. And I guess he kind of successfully does that uh, by yeah. spinning around and firing. You know, he ends up killing Bob. Um, so, you know, in the final moments of the film, we're at the diner that him and Martin used to meet at uh, together. And it's him, it's him, it's, uh, it's him, Kim, and his wife. And they're eating... Um, Kim is putting a ridiculous amount of ketchup on her french fries and she's eating them first, which mm. Martin earlier in the movie said he likes to save his for last. I don't know what the significance of that is, but but <laughs> juxtaposition. Yeah. Martin it shows up, he sits at the bar sort of place of the diner, and he's just drinking a water and watching the family as they get up and leave. And Kim Kim does not eat her burger, and that really frustrated me. Yeah, I was confused by that, yeah. too. It's like, there's all this food. But I, th- I think that maybe the point was just like, look, she ate her fries first. And that was kind of like, uh, I someone had suggested that that was uh, sort of, uh, yeah, symbolic of her no longer being under the spell of Martin but or she, something like that at that but point. But she stared at him the whole way out. She's looking back. Right. And he's looking at them. And I don't know. It, it feels like there's... First off, I find it interesting that they even went to this diner. Like, why are you going Mm. back to this place? Right. (laughs) Uh, But second, it's like, it feels like this is saying that Martin hasn't really left their lives. Like, he's still around, maybe. Um, Maybe this, maybe his justice has sort of been carried out, but he's still this looming presence. So 
and it doesn't really feel like they're necessarily taking the effort to make sure he isn't. Mm. Um, and I don't know what that is communicating. And I think that's one of the problems I have with this movie is it is this um, adaptation of a Greek tragedy and it's kind of twisting in a bunch of different ways. But what is the moral of this story exactly? Yeah, I mean, I, I... that's a good question. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think I kind of caught the surface of it where I was just focused on the the revenge aspect of it and yeah, uh, and the sacrifice and just like the fact that yeah, he puts the the hoodie on, and not that he puts the the beanie on, the blindfold, and he's spinning around in a, in a really crude manner, where he's kind of just like stepping around, and the family is just like just really tensed up, and he he does two false shots where he almost he almost hits the daughter, almost hits his wife, and then finally hits Bob the third time, and yeah, I yeah I don't know, it just seems yeah kind of biblical and just very like yeah rough and cold as far as I'm concerned with. You know, Colin Farrell's character and yeah it didn't seem like he really learned much he he has like a few outbursts but yeah as far as like the family still goes on they're even having the conversation in bed where they're like just like she's she says hey you can kill one we can have another kid like it's all good like yeah just like okay like they're kind of like turned they're kind of like turned off the switch more um, the morality switch has kind of been turned off like yeah trying to get through it at that point and like as a parent what do you want to sacrifice yourself to save your children but she's like trying to yeah. reason with Steven to be like, yeah, we can have another one. Yeah, yeah, which is like the total selfish way to like face the the biblical parable. So yeah, I don't know if these characters really learn anything towards the end. But yeah, it's, it's for sure a journey focused on the father's choice. And I think that's the, the center yeah. of it. Because her refusal to sacrifice herself for her children is just replacing the responsibility onto, Mark, uh, onto Stephen. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely uh, yeah didn't um, read it as kind of like lacking in the sense that you know uh, yeah uh, Colin, Colin Farrell's character doesn't kind of like have a sort of like uh, a real learning right like he doesn't go through this sort of like this growth necessarily um, but that's also how I read a lot of like myths and you know uh, like religious texts is their 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 story is not a, necessarily about kind of like the specific person who went through the experience, they're kind of like, they're for everyone else to, to almost like, well, now I'm not going to harm people uh, because I'm afraid that someone will come and find me uh, and, and, you know, uh, uh, require some some amount of justice where harm has to be done to me, right? And like, that's kind of the point of, of the myth. And so, you know, what I think Yorgos is more interested in is like, how can I retell this this ancient story as opposed to having a character that goes through a sort of like transformation? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you know, you don't want your kids to end up fighting over the MP3 and have their eyes bleeding out because you know, that's that's you don't want your family to go through that. That's right. Maybe it is just a thing where it's like justice is gonna catch up with you. Mm. You know, you can't run away from it. I really like the elevator shot when they're leaving. I just have to bring this up because it's one of my favorite moments in the movie when they're leaving the hospital with Bob and there's like a really slow pull out above them. And they're like going down this long escalator, and by the time he gets down to the bottom, he like just collapses. And I, I just appreciate just the the this movie kind of really takes its time to to show us things like that and just to have things play out visually. And I just appreciate yeah, I, that kind of that masterful choice of photography. Yeah, no, I, I think there's there's like yeah, basically every scene has some sort of like interesting visual element of it, in addition to having kind of like the sound to to accompany the scene. Um, but it's also interesting from the perspective, kind of like the drawn out aspect. Like, I, I don't think we even know what's going on or who the bad guy is or what form it's really taking until like halfway through the movie. Right. So we spend this yeah. like this, this, this first half, to, like just trying to figure out what's going on. So I, I can imagine that striking people in a way that they're not really kind of like fans of because they're not being kind of like explicitly 
you know, the plot's not being explicitly laid out for them. You're kind of just like, you know, you're on the edge of your seat waiting to figure out what is actually going on for, you know, I, I think it's like literally an hour before the scene with um, Colin and um, Barry sitting and, and him, him explaining what the case is. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was going to ask Daniel, have you seen The Lobster? Yeah, I have. So just like that, this both movies kind of have a very distinct uh, first half and distinct second half with them. And yeah, with this one, yeah, there's like the the beginning where it's, yeah, like the 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 surface level, I guess, yeah, uh, Colin Farrell's character and Barry, yeah, them, them kind of dealing with the problems. But then, yeah, once the actual, uh, the ultimatum is delivered, then everything kind of turns on its head. Yeah, I've heard people say that they really enjoy one half of The Lobster over the other half. Um, I watched it in two sittings just by chance. Um, so it, <laughs> okay. it was totally fine for me. Uh, maybe it made the the sort of transition a little less um, noticeable, though. So, what 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 half do uh, do you usually hear that people prefer? It's been it's been a while. I don't, I honestly don't remember. Um, I was reading it today. I think it's like the first because the first half is a little more like whimsical and lighthearted compared to the second half, where yeah. there's just a lot of mm-hmm. more other themes of sacrifice and mutilation and kind of you know. Yeah. And I feel like paying via blood. And I feel like if you're being lured into a story, so this kind of happened with this movie, like after the first act, I feel like I found the movie a lot less compelling because initially I'm trying to figure out what the fuck is going on in this movie. Um, Where is this going? Who is the villain? Like, I know something bad's going to happen. And then once Martin sits Steven down, it's like, here's what's going to happen. Like, here's what's going to happen to your family. And here's the choice you have to make. Then it became clear of what direction the movie was moving in. So the question of where is this going was no longer in my head. And it was no longer, it just, it wasn't as compelling to me. That, that's not necessarily a strike against it. Um, it's just, yeah, there's less intrigue. Huh, I felt the opposite way because I was like, not, I was into it, but I was like, okay, this is definitely kind of not my style. But then, yeah, once things get a little bit more biblical and violent towards the second half, I was like, yeah, this is really interesting. And yeah. <laughs> the visuals are definitely working for me a lot. So it's funny. We kind of have the opposite. (laughs) I mean, I think it is definitely, it's obviously a pivot, right? The first half kind of trying to figure out what's going on. Who's, who's the bad guy. And then the second half trying to figure out how he's going, how, how Colin Farrell is going to kind of resolve this. So it it does kind of require that you, you kind of, you pivot your, 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 uh, what your focus is. Um, and yeah, maybe there's an element to like how long you spend with a, a type of focus that makes that sort of like transitioning into, uh, uh, you know, a, a new model of how you're, uh, how how you're observing, um, you know, easier or, or harder. And I know there are different kinds of viewers where some people watch this and they're trying to figure out how this is happening. Like, how is it that the kids have mm. gone paralyzed? And like, I've heard some people say like, oh, like did, maybe did Martin poison them or something? And it's like, it's it's not about that. It's not about how it happened. It's about why it happened. And it's about that it's happening. Um, this yeah. is a this is a reality for those characters, and they have to face that reality, <laughs> whether they like it or not. Right, and and that that is a thing that I I do love about Yorgos uh, is that he like he creates these worlds, and you kind of just have to accept that you're somewhere else. Um, I've heard similar objections where uh, you know someone was like, well, uh, on on you know uh, in retrospect, if I would have just known that Martin is effectively a wizard, right, like this whole movie yeah. would have played out differently. And it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, they don't need to explicitly say that, though, right? You like you just have to be willing to accept that there's a bunch of stuff going on. You don't need like very explicit sort of like, oh, he poisoned the lemonade or something like that. Um, and then I also yeah. heard uh, the people uh, kind of talk about like 
the, the discomfort that is created intentionally being the thing that made them not like the experience. And so it's kind of an interesting sort of like the movie's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing in some sense. Yeah. But, you know, if you're not there to figure out what it's trying to do, then, then yeah, it's, it's not, it's not going to be a fun experience for you. And that, so, yeah, like, that means it's working when, right, <laughs> when right. you're like, when you walk away with that feeling. In that first act, like, I was so anxious and so <laughs> full of dread and so tense and I couldn't help but like grin ear to ear. Uh, yeah, I love that fucking, I won't let you leave until you've tried my tart line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that scene is great. Cause yeah, it goes from just like, yeah, like I like your hands. Can I see your hands to her like sucking on it and like kind of like gnawing on his hand. I was just like, the, the fetishism of that was just, just so well done. And yeah, I even wrote down that the fact that the hands thing kind of kept coming up. It's kind of uh, on a jokey side, but yeah, the fact that the sexual favor that she does to the anesthesiologist is, is a hand job inside of the car. And I was mm. like, okay, like, I didn't even think of that. Like, is, yeah, yeah it's kind of just like, uh, like just things I think of. Cause I'm, uh, <laughs> I was a little stoned. While Cause I love hand jobs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Hey, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. If it was a Quentin Tarantino film, it would have played out differently. Yeah. Yeah. Would have been paid. Yeah. Yeah. Death. <laughs> I don't know what the deal was with menstruation in this movie. Mm. Um, yeah. Why they had to keep mentioning that the daughter was menstruating. Um, I feel like sex in general is kind of has a weird role in this movie. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, every time that the uh, Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell have sex, like she just kind of they the first time they say it, she's like uh, general anesthesia. Yeah, general general anesthesia. And then she kind of like lays there with her head hanging off the edge of the bed in like mm-hmm. this really like lifeless manner, and that's like the way that she like presents herself on other occasions in the movie. And yeah, that's a really odd way to kind of initiate like the encounter. And then the daughter undresses for Martin and lays on the bed motionless too. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think what we're supposed to assume is that like she must have seen them having sex at one point, uh, and this has informed her own sexuality um we also get uh colin farrell's character telling bob this is a crazy scene <laughs> when, oh yeah when he's saying like we're gonna do a, we're gonna play a game i tell you a secret and you tell me a secret and we'll tell each other secrets until yeah. whoever has the best secret wins <laughs> and so he's like he's like when i was little uh i forget what it, the exact story is but he was he was uh sensitive it's, it's fucked up <laughs> yeah he was sensitive about his uh how much he ejaculated as a kid and so he snuck into his father's room when his father was passed out drunk and jerked his dad off and was like stunned by the amount of ejaculate. And so he tells all this to Bob. He tells it, it ran out. It ran out scared yeah. because he was, he was scared. And he tells it so fucking quickly that like you kind of yeah. don't have time to comprehend what the hell he's saying. Um, but then <laughs> it's Bob's turn to tell a secret and Bob's like, I, I, don't, I don't have a secret. <laughs> so he just told his son this for no reason. What but I think that's also... I think that's also supposed to kind of play into his own sexual awakening. And like, maybe this is why he, the fact that his father was asleep, maybe this is why he has like this anesthesia fetish. Mm, interesting. Um, maybe uh, that made me think of the outburst that he has inside the kitchen when they're talking and she's like, he mentions like, yeah, it's like, I want to have like mashed potatoes th- tomorrow or something like that. And then she like freaks, she like snaps on him because like, Hey, like our kids are dying in the next room. Like, how can you be thinking about, you know, dinner tomorrow or something like that? Like, yeah, whatever. But, like, you know, like, focus on this. And then he kind of 
doubles up on that and starts freaking out. So like, well, we don't have what we need. We don't have like you know starts listing off like kind of like these witches ingredients and one yeah. of them is like yeah so like, we don't have pubes and he's like like it's like we don't have like the pubes and he's like ripping shit out of like the cabinets and I was like yeah this is just like a really strange but also like can't help but like kind of laugh at the absurdity of just like right. this really really angry father with his kids dying in the next room but he's like screaming about pubes while ripping all the dishes out of his kitchen yeah it's uh yeah the, the, i think uh the 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 menstruation like coming up so casually in the conversations is is one of those things that i think is just you know the way that i i, I read it was really just like it, it it does just show you how empty and like not connected to uh, you know, I, I think what we would consider like social norms, right? Uh, so like, who are well, these it, people? And go ahead. It could also be how not connected to his own children he is maybe. Mm, sure. Cause it's like, well, he knows this, this medical fact about her. He's a doctor, but like, I mean, he knows she sings. She doesn't sing very well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. He, when he's like telling other people about his daughter, he's not telling her about her achievements that like she's accomplished, uh, outside right, of yeah. nature. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's interesting, though, because uh, when Nicole Kidman comments on on Bob being like good at piano and they're, you know, they're thinking about getting him a piano. Like I read it as uh, like both of like them playing a very um, consistent game, right? Like his commentary on the daughter and her menstruating. And then Nicole Kidman was kind of complimenting Bob on his yeah. achievements in some sense. But both of them felt so kind of like removed um, and kind of like yeah, lacking, uh, uh, not, not, not very genuine, um, just in the sense of like, they've rehearsed these, these lines almost like they've done this a thousand times and they just repeat the same six sentences, uh, every time they're out and someone says, Hey, how are the kids? I mean, that might also just be the nature of the performances though, because right, they're right. pretty fucking weird. Right. Um, yeah. So that wraps things up for killing of a sacred deer. Um, Derek, why don't you tell us a little bit about dimension? Yeah. Um, so uh, Dimension is uh, kind, of, kind of a platform that, um, that I, I started thinking about a, a couple years ago just from having lots of sort of like really long form conversations with friends online um, in like Slack channels uh, was kind of the most standard way. But then also on Twitter, you can kind of see people having these sort of uh, text based conversations with kind of large quantities of people. Um, but over time, there was kind of this consistent pattern of, you know, uh, People are, are disagreeing and then, you know, you'll spend four hours disagreeing with someone to just realize that you were uh, misinterpreting like one of their points to mean something that it didn't mean or um, you were using a word in, in, in kind of different ways. Um, and so, you know, my, my, my mind kind of went to the space of what kind of uh, sort of like infrastructure could you build for conversations to kind of like rest upon uh, that would allow for people to kind of get to the point uh, a little bit quicker than kind of like arguing for four hours about something they don't actually disagree about, right? Um, yeah, totally. And so, you know, uh, so, 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 you know, the current instantiation of, 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 of the app is really that there are just propositions um, and they, you know, they, they look like tweets, right? It's just like, you know, just, just whatever little claim that you want to make. And then anybody who is on the platform can rate how true they think that that proposition is on a scale from zero to 100. Um, and so in this, there's kind of a couple things uh, that happen um, kind of immediately turns uh, 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 the user into sort of like a, a Bayesian rationalist, right? This idea of like you're all of a sudden forced to think about a claim in terms of probabilities, uh, which is something that kind of none of the other sort of social platforms really lend themselves to. Uh, they're more absolutist in the sense that 
Um, you can make a claim or you cannot make a claim. You can like a tweet or you cannot like a tweet. You can retweet a tweet or not. Um, but it's very hard to say like, well, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but there's also some area of gray here to kind of like parse through. Um, yeah. And so that that's really kind of the main the main idea is how can you destructure basically what's going on and uh, allow for people to more explicitly make claims in the way that they intend to make them to be kind of more aware of the the the, the word choices that they make. So if I want to make a proposition, I'm hoping to get uniform agreement. I might take the time to think about the words that I choose. But if I'm in the heat of the moment going back and forth with someone on Twitter, like, am I, am I, am I taking a second to really think about a generous way that they use their language? Or am I thinking about, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, yeah, the, the, the way that I could say something that might invite them uh, in, in, into my worldview? Because it's really about kind of these different perspectives and trying to occupy these, these different looks at what is basically the same, the same object. Um, and so that, that's kind of, you know, uh, Daniel read the description earlier on this idea of, you know, eradicating misunderstanding. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, whole, the whole thing is like we're misunderstanding more often than we're actually disagreeing. And, you know, yeah. we're looking at different things. We're looking at the same thing from different perspectives. So how can I just put your goggles on? Like, I want to see the world through your eyes and I can likely agree with what you're describing and you can likely agree with what I'm describing. But for whatever reason, humans kind of start with this default assumption that uh, anyone who didn't say explicitly what they think that the other person should have said is somehow in disagreement with them. Uh, and I think that, that that is, you know, it basically starts us off in, in a position to fail as opposed to a more sort of like charitable uh, starting point or a generous starting point where it's like, well, no, both of these things are probably true. It's just a matter of making sure that we pin down what, what the details of what, what each person was saying. Yeah, and the world of the internet, the conversation is very often yes or no, but humans operate in, in the kind of space where, you know, I, I might be a little bit of this, I might be a little bit of that, depending on how I feel during the day. So, yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing to have that kind of option within the discourse. And, yeah, looking forward to kind of exploring the app a little bit and you know, finding out about it. Yeah, and I think if we're eliminating the binary, then it's, yeah, we're creating a situation where people... It's not that they feel more comfortable being in the, oh, I'm kind of this way, I'm kind of that way. It's just they are kind of being forced to more often find themselves in that position. Mm -hmm. uh, like comfort has nothing to do with it. It's just the repeated acknowledgement that, no, you don't 100% agree with a lot of the things that you're engaging with or 100% right. disagree. Yeah, I, and I, I do think that is kind of like a natural side effect. If I want to say that, you know, I'm pretty confident in something, but I don't rate it 100%. Like that, that's an important thing for me to encounter, right? Like from my own sort of like psychological health is to know that I'm not absolutely certain about that thing, even if I'm really confident in it, which then kind of lends itself to me being subject to update my view later. Um, and this is another problem with kind of the, the, the structure of, of online discourse right now is it's kind of a, a static form, right? It's like, if you, if you write a tweet in 2010, it's still there in its absolute form, right? Like there's no, you can't go back and, and slightly update that. And even if you wanna, you know, comment on it, it doesn't reach everyone who saw the original tweets. If you wanna tweet something new and update your view, it doesn't get to everyone uh, that, that, that it needs to get to. It'd be like, by the way, I no longer think this. I, I actually kind of have updated my view a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, I think it, that lends itself to the space of, you know, everything's quite fluid and that's a healthier space for the sort of the discourse overall is for everyone to realize how fluid these sorts of like what is true and what false or what is true and what is false actually is. Um, it's just a matter of like the individuals engaging kind of like recognizing that first and foremost. 
right? Um, and then from there, you can kind of like work backwards from any proposition that there might be some disagreement about and figure out like where in your sort of uh, your, your, your value hierarchy are, is there the thing that is actually like not something that can be um, kind of like uh, resolved, right? Like uh, you can only arrive at this conclusion if you think that this is the most important thing while I'm holding this other thing as the most important thing. Um, but it kind of, yeah, it, it, this whole, the, where do we start from? How can we anchor ourselves to a sort of like an objective space as opposed to kind of being stuck inside of our internal representation of, of the universe? Um, we need to be able to map these onto one another and, 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 and language itself is just not really built for the, 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 current, uh, the, the current conversation in, in the forms that uh, the social media giants have, have kind of created. Uh, and then unfortunately, like, you know, Twitter rolls out basically their version of Snapchat in the last couple of weeks. So it tells us, exactly what platforms like Twitter actually focused on, which is not the quality of the discourse, right? And it's their only real job Stories, yeah. is, is, is to kind of like, yeah, to, 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 to be the, the, the host of the global conversation. And it's not, you know, they're not doing anything. The, 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 what a tweet is and the ways that you interact with a tweet, um, like that, there's threads, right? And retweeting became a thing. But other than that, they're not really focused on this idea of like, what, what is the best model for people to kind of like engage with one another in a, in a healthy kind of kind of sense? Yeah. And they're not. Yeah. And the yeah. Go can't, ahead. You can't edit. You can, the fact that you can't edit right. is the fact that, you know, you can't like kind of modify something. It, it's very static. And yeah, that's one major downside of that entire website is just, you know, uh, I like that you can't edit. Thought. <laughs> well, it, it definitely it forces uh, it forces self curation a little bit more carefully. But yeah, I like I like the idea of this, too, where, you know, it's a little bit more malleable right well it's because yeah social media platforms they're what they're mo mostly chasing is just engagement they don't care about like the health of the conversation it's just like are people clicking are people using the platform is this addictive like the, yeah yeah and so it's not the question of is this actually good for society is an afterthought Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's an incentive alignment problem, you know, and that, that, that's always the case is like, if you're not managing incentives, if those aren't kind of top of mind when you're thinking about a system, the system is going to do things that you're not actually like uh, necessarily interested in. And, you know, this is a problem with like ads in general, right? It's like, that's all, of course at the top of mind for, for something like Twitter as well. Um, yeah. But, you know, you end up building all, all of these things that are kind of distracted from what the initial idea was, which was, let me talk to all my friends. Um, but, you know, I, I think it really is just like and, and maybe, you know, not all of Twitter is really about kind of like uh, are uh, not arguing, but just talking across across kind of like, uh, you know, uh, enemy lines. Right. Like the, 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 there are kind of like uh, subsets of communities where it's, it's cordial and people are kind of just sharing ideas and can be really useful. But the whole the whole point here is that like that 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 sort of usefulness needs to be scaled up, right? Like we have a platform with, uh, I think Twitter has like 350 million users on it, right? Like uh, they need to be able to communicate to each other. We need to be able to kind of communicate with the people that we disagree with in ways that are not just, you know, I, I'm good and you are evil. Like there's there's no resolution to that problem uh, if that's your conclusion. You're not you're not you're not going to be interested in solving that problem, uh, or whatever the disagreement is. Um, but collectively, there needs to be more of a sort of like understanding of what someone actually means when they say this thing uh, that you find repulsive, and 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 that needs to be kind of explorable in a way that um, doesn't immediately make you a part of this tribe that you're trying to avoid being on. But I think part of the problem is that like. We're no longer interested in understanding each other because what we're interested in doing is winning. Because winning is what shifts real world tides politically and socially. And so it's like, 
it's it's kind of like uh, how social media platforms are chasing dollars. They're chasing engagement. Uh, there are other people who are just who are just chasing shifts and whether they're not placing a healthy conversation higher than the importance of shifts. The shifts are the tangible thing that actually matters. Right. Um, I, I, yeah, I think I mean, I think that is right. There is there's a sort of like a, a difference in the two models. One of them is kind of like short term. Right. So if, if we can get you know, our president elected that we want, then we're going to see some real uh, some, some some real things happen in the next few years that are going to be tangible to me. Uh, or if we lose, right, it'll be the same thing. There will be tangible events that I won't want to see. Um, yeah. But at the same time, like if you think about the political system as a whole, it's in a sort of like stalemate because everything gets kind of like hijacked into a sort of uh, almost like a, a religiosity, right? Where where ideas that the Republican Party was in support of, uh, you know, a decade ago, uh, and then the Democrats kind of like adopt those ideas and all because all of a sudden those are poisonous ideas to the Republican Party, right? And it's just mm -hmm. like, well, that, 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 that's not what we wanted, right? Like we actually made the, we actually got to the same point in, in terms of like the two parties being able to interpret ideas uh, in a way that there was alignment, but all of a sudden now that the other party was thinking about that idea, it had to become this sort of like negative thing. And so as much as there is this sort of short-term short thing, uh, we we're, we're, we're kind of like trading blows almost where it's like, okay, yeah, we can have these slow pendulum, pendulum swings uh, on these on these kind of like more short term uh, tangible feels. But they're going to go in both directions as opposed to us realizing that, you know, what, what the differences actually are there. There is going to be more overlap than than we actually uh, treat, treat, treat it like there is. Yeah, I'm excited to kind of get on the app and use it a little bit and mess, look around the feed. Yeah. Oh, and Derek, yeah, you actually have a podcast. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of launched a podcast to accompany the app, basically, this idea of like, uh, you know, what's the best way to demonstrate the utility of the app is to uh, have conversations with people in real time about propositions in the app and then kind of like, you know, help people understand what my, you know, what my ratings are uh, representative of, and then let the other person do the same. And then we try to figure out, okay, wh which of these models is actually uh, the better model. And, and a lot of the time that kind of gets into more of a sort of uh, like philosophical approach to how, to, how, how the person's using the app, because again, both points end up being uh, kind of pretty agreeable. Uh, but yeah, but the idea is, is, is uh, the, the, this podcast, the Dimension Podcast is what it's called. Um, and then it kind of, uh, caters to the listener to play along. So, you know, we introduce what proposition we're going to discuss. The idea is the user pulls open the app, they rate it alongside everyone. Um, and then as we have a conversation, everyone is kind of like updating their ratings in real time. Yeah, I just pulled it up. And the first one is, if I had the choice, no one would ever suffer. And that's like a, a nice, good, like philosophical, <laughs> philosophical question. Yeah, there, there, yeah, there's a lot of a uh, lot of interesting sort of like philosophy in there. But then there's also lots of uh, yeah, just like spam because you know that's that's kind of how how conversations generally go. Yeah. So it's like, well, maybe there's some people I want to suffer. You know, right, right. It uh, causes. <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah, definitely. If you have um, if you have feedback, I, I definitely want to hear how 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 people's experiences are and what kind of features they'd they'd like to see. So definitely uh, send send them my way. Um, yeah, totally. All right. So yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Derek. Um, yeah, thanks, if, Derek. If you are listening, check out Dimension. Do you want to spell that for us real quick? Yeah, it's uh, Dimension. D I M E N S C H E N. And what platforms is that? Uh, it's going to be on iOS and Android. Cool. Well, what have you been watching this week, Daniel? Ugh. Yeah, I haven't been watching that much, to be <laughs> honest. Um, what I've been doing is I've kind of 
my new obsession is I've been playing a lot of Super Nintendo emulators. Okay. And I probably, in this past week, I've spent like a good four hours just uh, messing with shaders to try and make my 4K television look like an old CRT TV <laughs> so that I can try and relive those memories. Bring the um, but down a, a little bit. Yeah, I'll get those scan lines in. And <laughs> I'm one of those people who like obsessive, uh, gets really obsessive over like, um, calibration of a monitor and stuff like that it drives emily crazy but yeah uh, i'm becoming so yeah. that way too because i've watched some movies recently where like yeah possessor had a lot of reds in it and then i was like yeah like these reds aren't coming through very right like aren't aren't quite right so i had to pause it a few times and do the hue saturation darkness contrast shit and yeah i was getting really obsessive <laughs> over the blacks and the reds and that yeah, and it's really hard for me because I'm, like I said, I'm part colorblind. I'm like red-green colorblind. So yeah, that's heavy yeah, it's just a total, it's a total disaster. Um, yeah, Emily and I, we used to do, we've done wedding photography a couple times. And every time we had to do touch-ups, um, I would like sit down and start playing with the colors and stuff. And she was like, what, why is everyone completely yellow? Like, what is going on? <laughs> and like, uh -oh. she was like, oh yeah, you're colorblind. <laughs> like, you should not be doing this. So now I only do the black and white stuff and cropping. So Sweet. that's good. There you go. Um, yeah, it's got to be tough. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird. It, it was weird going to film school and realizing that there was probably no way in hell that I'd be a cinematographer. Um, oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I did catch up on Mandalorian. Nice. Uh, yeah. I remember we watching required it. required to talk about it. Yeah, I remember watching it very, very early on Friday morning. So it's been a while. But yeah, it's an eventful episode. Yeah, what did you think? Uh, I thought it was okay. I thought Mandalorian was talking kind of weird and acting kind of weird throughout the episode. It hmm. is a, a strange episode overall just because of, like, a lot of fan service and, like, kind of Boba returning and doing that whole yeah. badass fight sa and saving them. But, yeah, it just, yeah, it it wasn't perfect, but I was I was into it overall. I don't have any major complaints, I would say. I don't know. I, I like, wasn't really digging Robert Rodriguez's style because uh, I feel like... He does this thing where it's very goofy, heightened action that it's unusual how when you watch Desperado, it's actually cool. And it's like, this shouldn't be cool. This should be goofy. But maybe it's just the power of like the cast, Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek. Yeah, maybe. Or, um, but yeah, here it's like, I don't know if I really want this kind of goofy, exaggerated action in my Star Wars, especially when it's immediately following up with this like slower placed more contemplative uh ahsoka tano episode um yeah that episode that came before is a lot stronger and this one yeah just kind of odd and they like place grogu on this like jedi thing which i thought they got to really fast because usually i i don't know for things like this i was like okay this is going to be something that shows up in a, a few more episodes towards the end but like this whole jedi temple kind of thing happened very soon and yeah he was sitting on there doing his light blue force beam into the sky and there's all this kind of yeah. other action happening so yeah it's kind of uneasy like as that was happening yeah it's interesting tone yeah and like it kind of reminded me of a fan film a little bit the way it's just ev like every fan film is basically an uh, an action scene with uh some sort of badass fan service and it's usually shot in a location where they didn't have to get permission so this is like out in a big outdoor space and Rodriguez is doing all this kind of weird stuff with the camera. There's like these, there's these moments where there's these 
sort of weird bars on the left and right sides of the screen. Did you notice that? Um, I don't know if I noticed that, but there's, yeah. it's like it's almost like he has glass on the sides of the lens or something. And I, I wasn't sure if this was supposed to be POV from a stormtrooper or something like that. I, but... I know exactly what you're talking about now. Yeah, there's some action shots where they're like in the middle of that stormtrooper fight. Yeah, and like parts of the edge of the frame is like kind of yeah it has lines in it. Yeah, and he's also doing like weird vignetting and stuff, and I don't know. I, I'm I'm happy that they're experimenting with a lot of different directors and stuff, but uh, Robert Rodriguez didn't really cut it for me. <laughs> for sure, yeah. I was just kind of hung up on just that. It's just a lot of a lot of Boba Fett kind of action, kind of him showing up and getting his armor back, and so yeah, yeah and looking really goofy in it. It's yeah, like, like kind of pudgy <laughs> under the armor. <laughs> Well, I looked it up, and he, that actor is uh, Tamara Morrison. He's actually, like, three to five inches shorter than the guy who wears the armor in Return of the Jedi. So he's just got, like, a totally different build. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. I liked some of it. I thought when the, uh, what do they call the dark troopers? When they when they show up and take Grogu, yeah. I like that part. I thought that was kind of done really nicely. They just, like, just slowly approach him and just grab him and fly off. Yeah, and it's nice that they're bringing Moff Gideon to be a more, you know, villainous presence because they they spend the end of season two kind of building him up. And then he kind of just takes a back seat in this season. And it kind of makes it feel like the overarching plot isn't really... <laughs> it doesn't feel like there is one. <laughs> because yeah, really. you don't really... Yeah, because in that first season, you feel the the presence of these bounty hunters that are chasing after them, of the Empire that are chasing after them. And so you're established that there's this danger behind them. So it kind of justifies the planet hopping nature of the show. But in this, it's like, oh, you got to find a Jedi. Uh, oh, you found the Jedi. Well, now you got to find uh, this rock and put Grogu on it. And you don't really feel that they're being chased. Yeah, uh, the the meme or the joke with season one was like, yeah, it's like a video game with a bunch of side quests. But yeah, season two is felt a lot more side questy and kind of just filling in the lore and getting more information about the Jedi and the Mandalorians and just other characters involved in the involved in this big whatever chess game that's happening. Yeah, it's just like a bunch of stopovers, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, um, I'm I'm kind of I'm okay with, but yeah, there's some weaker episodes in this season for sure, like the Bill Withers one and the, yeah, and then this one. Bill, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I had a thought and now I've lost it. For sure. Uh, yeah, I think it's just. It's. It would be nice if they kept if they maintained that there's this presence that they are running away from, so that we feel justified in them going from planet to planet versus, I don't know, just new missions. Like I don't I don't mind that every episode kind of feels different. I actually really enjoy it. People have compared it to Xena Warrior Princess and stuff, and it's like that's cool. I've totally watched like Xena Star Wars. Um, that's kind of cool. I've never but, watched Xena as a kid, so yeah, I never watched it either. <laughs> uh, I'm interested in it. I, I guess um, what's his name? The guy who did Sam Raimi, he was a producer on it, and oh, okay. like Bruce Campbell's in it and shit like that. Oh, sweet. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I, I think they just need this. The, the connective tissue needs to be a little stronger in like why the show is happening. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, what have you been watching lately? Uh, I've been watching all sorts of stuff. I've got to my 100th movie of the year. Um, Damn. Yeah, fucking The Lobster and uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer were 101 and 102. 
But yeah, 99 was Wonder Woman. I'd never seen it. And I'm curious okay. about uh, 1984 that comes out at the end of this month. And yeah, yeah I, I like I like Wonder Woman. I was kind of curious about it. So I checked that out. And I, I enjoy that movie. I feel like a lot of superhero movies have this issue with being really interesting and having cool stuff about them, but then ending with a massive CGI battle that's just totally bland and yeah, just like definitely. So it has that issue, but there's still some good beats in it that I really enjoyed. Um, and then I watched this movie called Downhill with my parents. I don't know that one, no. Yeah, it came out earlier this year. It's a remake of a Dutch film called Force Majeure. And it's like this. Oh, yeah. I love drama. Force Majeure. Yeah. I've never, I like, really want to see that movie now because I've watched the the lesser American remake of Will Ferrell and Julie, Julie, Julia Louis Dreyfus. And yeah, it was just a, not that great of a movie. Yeah. Just a really odd tone, not like very funny and not super dramatic or intense, just in this weird middle ground. Yeah. It was, so I've only seen Force Majeure, and Force Majeure has this thing where. It is all just about masculinity. Mm, okay. um, did Downhill have that same sort of like theme, <laughs> imposing theme? Not really. There are some scenes where that's brought up, but it just does the quirky adult comedy, but it it plays it very safe and very light. And so, uh. yeah, like there's not really many overarching themes like that that showed up or that stuck out to me. There's a... Yeah, I'm even like kind of replaying the plot in my mind. I feel like they just, I don't want to say they gutted it, but they they took a lot of what could have been really interesting, and, and it's just like Will Ferrell and Julia, Julia kind of just hanging out in the snow. And it seems like a vacation yeah, there, movie. <laughs> there's a scene in Force Majeure which I feel like sort of underlines like the, uh, I guess, theme of masculinity and how it is defined, which is there's a scene where the dad who like ran away from his family. Uh, he's just like out in the snow and a crew of men just comes around a corner and they're all yelling and screaming <laughs> and they all just start rushing towards him. And then he just gets caught up in them. Like uh, it's like a stampede of men. That's amazing. And then we, yeah. And then we cut to shots of him in like this, if I'm remembering this correctly, they're like in this room where like, it's just a bunch of like shirtless, sweaty men like dancing and That's screaming yeah. and stuff like that in slow motion. Absorbed into the amoeba. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that movie is very fucking interesting. Yeah, I really want to check it out. I mean, I guess props to, props to Downhill for leading me to a more interesting movie, but yeah, I wasn't that crazy about it. Because it is, yeah, like the premise. Okay, so for listeners who don't know what what this movie's about, it's about. Um, this family who is vacationing in this snowy mountainous region. They're going, they're like on a ski trip or something like that. Yeah. And they go to get food. And while they're eating up on this balcony sort of area, um, there is an avalanche nearby. And the dad reassures the family, oh, it's, you know, uh, what, what, what's it called? Controlled, controlled sort of, sort of like a controlled demolition thing. Like they're controlled avalanches. They know yeah. what they're doing. And the snow keeps rising and rising and getting closer and closer. And everyone is kind of getting nervous. And the snow kind of takes over this balcony area where the family is eating. And the dad grabs his, like, phone, I think. Yeah, and he away. rushes, he runs away. And leaves his family behind in this, in this avalanche. And it turns out it was just, you know, some snow swept over them. It wasn't a big deal. Um, wasn't anything serious. 
However, now it's a situation of how does the family go about uh, dealing with the fact that their father abandoned them <laughs> in a in a disaster. Yeah, and I'm really curious about the original version because yeah, this American version seems to just play towards the the Will Ferrell. I don't know, like it's not quite super dramatic Will Ferrell, but it's it's right on the edge of that where it's like yeah, like he's like oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like I don't see what the issue was, and he's like kind of playing. He's playing it off being really coy, being charming Will Ferrell, but not being that charming. And so yeah, just the tone of this movie yeah. is just really strange. It's directed by Jim Rash and another person, and yeah, it just it just uh, it's a very odd movie. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, is there another couple that engages with them in the movie? Yeah, there's another couple that's more like a hashtaggy YOLO, live by the whatever kind of thing. And okay. they get invited by Will Ferrell's character to show up and the shit goes down when he, they talk about the incident. And they It's basically like a yeah. lesson in okay. gaslighting because, yeah, the, the entire time the mom is like, no, this was really bad. We were really scared. We were all really yeah. scared. And the dad's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't know what you're talking about. And so, yeah. It's just, yeah, that's it's, for it's sure, really too. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, that movie just check sounds out, like yeah, it has check out the more interesting things. For sure. Yeah, but that was movie 100 of the year. Cool. <laughs> sounds really fucking stupid, but next week we're going to be watching Final Destination 5. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. So tune in for that if you're interested in it. Um, so yeah, I have been Daniel, and joining me as always is... Yeah. I'm Thomas. This has been episode 17 of Vague Zone. If you want to tweet at us, tweet us at uh, hit us <laughs> hit us up on Twitter at Vague Zone. If you want to email us at vaguezonepod at gmail.com, you can email us. You know, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, let us know. And yeah, we'll catch you on the next one. All right. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Bye.